And I'm telling you that the religious right is going to tell you that it's all about God's holiness. And that's the reason why we need to be righteous because God grades on a curve. And if you're moral enough, if you're upright enough, then God will accept you on the basis of what you've done. And the religious left will say, no, 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 no. Jesus has paid for it all. He's forgiven you. He loves you. He's gracious. Live your life the way that you want to live it. Everything's okay. Don't worry about it. And yet, what does the cross say to the question of which attribute prevails, the holiness of God or the love of God? The answer is yes. Welcome to the weekly sermon at Gateway. My name is Jason McNabb. The story of King David is a remarkable testimony of God's faithfulness to his people Israel. His life and faith journey point us to Christ, who is the promised king that would surpass David and save his people. You can find more information about this series at gatewaycrc.org. And now, here's this week's message. Good morning. My name is Jasmine Bullock, and I've been attending Gateway for about three and a half years now. I am part of a life group on Tuesday nights, as well as serve with Summit on Thursday nights. And you can often find me some Sunday mornings with my camera or taking photos of different events we have here at the church. Today's reading comes from 2 Samuel chapter 6. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down, and he died there beside the ark of God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah, and to this day that place is called Perazuzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Now, King David was told, the Lord had blessed this household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, while he and all of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israelites both men and women, and all the people went to their homes. When David returned home to bless his household, Michael, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this and I will be humiliated in my own eyes, but by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. This is the word of the Lord. 
If uh, you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, I invite you to grab those if you haven't done that already and to find 2 Samuel chapter 6. While you're looking for that, I want to start off with a question. In your mind's eye, how do you view God? How do you picture him? Do you see him as someone who is majestic and mighty? Or do you see him as someone who is intimate and close by? Do you see him as someone who is distant and far off or, or someone who draws near to you? Do you see him as someone who is ferocious and fierce? Or do you see him as intimate and tame? It's really interesting over the course of the last 2,000 plus years how the church has largely viewed God and presented him. So for instance, if you went to a church in medieval Europe, you would see a God who was larger than, than life, who was ferocious and fierce. You would see depictions of God's final judgment. He was distant and far off. He seemed vindictive, perhaps even cruel. At the end of this time, we will see the reformer, Martin Luther, he would say this of his interpretation of God. He said, I tortured myself with prayer and fasting, with vigils and freezing. The frost alone might have killed me. What else did I seek by doing this but God, who was supposed to take note of my strict observance of my faith? I constantly walked in a dream, and I lived in a real idolatry. Hear this. For I did not believe in Christ, I regarded him only as a severe and terrible judge. So that's one view, right? And then I would say, I don't think that's the way that we typically view God today. Painting with a broad brush, I would say that the majority of Christians in the West see God almost on the other end of the spectrum we kind of see him as Father Christmas in the sky. We see him as Buddy Jesus, or as the way I like to tell you, as our cosmic consultant. Sure, he's powerful, but he's powerful in, his, in the same sense as Genie in the movie Aladdin. He's powerful, but he's tame. He's malleable. He's controllable. And that's often the time, oftentimes how we view God Today, and we are faced with a story this morning who's going to really undo and undress those types of perspectives. And we are going to see that both the, the God in the sky, ferocious and fierce, and the malleable and controllable God, both of these are distortions of the one true God that we see revealed in Scripture. Now, let me readily admit something to you. The story that we are looking at today, growing up, was one of my least favorite stories. Like, we just heard it. Jasmine just told us the story. There is this man named Uzzah, and he sees that the ark of God is about to fall into the dirt. He tries to catch it, and what happens? Boom! He's dead. God's just like, pew, you're dead. Like, that's it. Why? Why? What's the point of all of that? Doesn't, doesn't that just seem a little bit cruel? that God would do that. He was just trying to help the Lord out. And so what do we learn from this story? In fact, let me try and summarize this entire chapter in about 15 seconds. It goes like this. One guy stops the Ark of the Covenant from falling into the mud, and he is smited. Is that a word? I just made it a word. He is smited because of his irreverence. We see that in verse 7. And then David, later, he is worshiping the Lord with all of his might, dressed in a linen ephod, that's code for undergarments, and he is blessed by God for his reverence? 
what? How, how does that give? What, what are we missing? And so here's the point of this whole story. Here's what we have to see. I put it this way in your note sheet. The plain main thing is this. God is good, but he is not tame. He is not tame. So look at your Bible with me. The context of the story is that God has just defeated none other than the Philistines. In the same way that we saw the whole sequence of events in all of 1 Samuel, the Philistines, they're not just an enemy of Israel. They are a depiction for all of us on whether or not Israel is following God. And so now David is the king of Israel. We're picking up at chapter 6, verse 1. It says this. David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000 of them. Stop right there. There's an important number. Do you remember the story in 1 Samuel? What happens? We have Israel. They're going up against the Philistines. They take the ark of God with them into battle because it is their way of trying to manipulate, to co-opt God to get what they want. They say, if the ark of God is here, then surely he will bless us. He's got to bless us because we got his stuff. And what happens on that day? 30,000 men perish. They die. And so the author wants to draw to mind that story for us. And the question for us is, 30,000 men carrying the ark of God again, is this a good omen or a bad one? Verse 2. He and all his men went to Bala in Judah to bring up from there the ark of God. Now, do you remember where the ark of God has been for the last 20 years? Just nod your head. I'm going to feel really good as a pastor. Yes, I remember that, Pastor Justin. It has been all the way off with Abinadab for the last 20 years. Years Again, going back to that same story, the people of Israel, they lose the ark of God, and it goes with the Philistines. And the Philistines, they try to bring it into their own temple as a bit of a trophy, and what happens? All of the people in that city, they are struck with boils, and they're struck with tumors, and all of their gods keep falling down, the ones made of stone, the ones made of metal. They fall down and they prostrate themselves before the ark of God. And then they kind of play hot potato with it. It goes all over the place. And they're like, this thing is cursed. We don't want it. They send it back to Israel. And then Israel, they're like, yay, we have it back. Have you ever wondered what's inside? They look inside, boom, they're struck dead. And so everyone is afraid of the ark of God. They don't want to touch it. And so Abinadab, he takes it, and he puts it in his guest bedroom. Friends come over, and they're like, what's in that room? And he goes, I wouldn't go in there if I were you. That's where it sits. For 20 years, that's where it sits. Verse 3. They set the ark of God on a new net, a new cart, sorry, and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it. David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord, with castnets, with harps, lyres, timbrels, sistrums, and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act, circle, highlight, underline. Therefore, God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. Now watch this next verse. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. One of the things that I love about the Bible 
is just how brutally honest it is. David is offended at God. And as I've shared with you already, growing up reading the story, I was too. Like, doesn't this seem a little bit unfair? What is Uzzah trying to do? This is the ark of God. This is the most reverent piece of furniture that the people of Israel have ever beheld. And it's about to fall into the mud. So what does he do? He goes, oops, I'll catch that for you. And he's struck dead. And so maybe you're a little bit like me and you're like, what gives? Very, very clearly, the punishment does not fit the crime. Like, God, did you really have to kill him? Maybe you could have just given him a good, firm slap on the wrist and said, don't do that. That's not okay. Next time I'll get you, but I'll give you a little bit of a warning. He struck dead. What gives? What gives? Is that, is that fair? And so here's the way that I put it in your note sheet. To that question, does the punishment feel more severe to the crime? The answer, nope. The punishment is not more severe than the crime. Wait, 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 wait. How? Why? Two things. First, it might be helpful for you to know that Israel was given very specific instructions on how to carry the ark of God. Those are written in your note sheet. Exodus 25, Numbers chapter 4, Numbers chapter 7. Very clear instructions on how Israel is to carry this. Um, the Ark of God was, it had loops, and then you could put poles through it, and then you could carry it, and in that way, no one would ever accidentally touch the Ark of God. And yet, if you look at your Bible, look down at verse 3, it says that they put the Ark of the Covenant on a new cart. Do you see that in verse 3? On a new cart. Where did they get that idea to put it on a cart? The Philistines. The Philistines were the ones who put it on a cart. And once again, Israel has decided, I'm going to do what's right in my own eyes, and I'm not going to follow God's instructions. I'm not going to do it God's way. I'm going to do it my way. Why? Because it's easier. It's more convenient. Would you rather carry something, or would you rather push it on a cart? For those of you who are parents, you know the answer to that question. You push the kids, you don't carry the kids. And in the same way, Israel is saying to themselves, no, I, I don't want to carry it. I don't want to lift it up. I just want to push it along. They are denying what God has instructed them to do. And how do we do this today? What are some of the equivalent examples of how we decide to do what is right in our own eyes today? Well, maybe let's try a couple of these. Maybe... Uh, someone could say something like this, well, I'm, I don't really care about going to church on Sunday morning and joining together in corporate worship. I just worship God in other ways. I, I sleep in, I go for a hike, I go fishing. Those are the things that are meaningful and significant to me. Or I don't tithe my income. I, I serve God in other ways, in other ways that are meaningful to me. I don't treat the word of God as truth revealed in his word on how I should live my life, and when the Bible says jump, I say how high. No, I, I'm a little bit more authentic than that. I pick and choose the things that are important to me. I leave the rest, and God is just a really, really, really well-respected uh, consultant in my life. These are the ways that we do the, exactly the same thing that Uzzah does, that we say, God, your word is good advice. It is not the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth for my life. And the second thing, and this is even more important, this is the bigger issue by far, was this. Consider writing this down. Uzzah was convinced, was unconvinced, sorry, of the extent of his own sinfulness. 
He was unconvinced of the extent of his own sinfulness. And think about this with me just for a second. This is the reason why I think I used to be so offended with this story. It's the reason why I think a lot of people get offended with this story. Because we have the same perspective as Uzzah. Uzzah is convinced of this, that the filthy, grimy dirt of the ground is more grotesque and more filthy than his hands. And God has a very, very different opinion on that matter. Pastor and author R.C. Sproul, he put it this way, the dirt had never rebelled against the authority of God. Only sinful man had done that. It wasn't the dirt on the ground that would defile the ark. It was the touch of man. And so Uzzah didn't realize that his hands were more filthy than the filthiest mud and dirt on planet Earth. He didn't see that. He didn't have that perspective. And so look, friends, our sin is infinitely more offensive to a holy God than any of the dirt on the ground. And that right there is what is so offensive about this story. Because it forces each and every one of us to put the binoculars away, to bring out the big fat mirror and to say, that's me too. I'm exactly the same way as Uzzah. I don't see the, the sinfulness because of my own sinful nature, because of the self-deception of sin. I keep minimizing my own sinfulness. I keep saying, well, I, I'm a pretty good person. I'm not that bad. I'm, I think I'm living my life pretty good. And yet, we don't see the extent of our sinfulness before God. So how do we do this? I think the chief way that we do this today is through the strategy of comparisons. So here's what it sounds like. I'm not that sinful. And then someone asks you this question. In comparison to what? In comparison to what? In comparison to your sinful neighbor? Do you know what that's like? That's like a hog in the middle of a mud pit on a rainy day saying, I'm the cleanest hog in this joint. That's the whole thing. You have to realize that if you're comparing yourself to other sinful people, of course you might have a sense of self-righteousness. But the point isn't to compare yourself to your neighbor. It's to compare yourself to the holiness of a holy God. I love the way that pastor and author Tim Chester puts this. He says that we are kind of like butane-soaked rags trying to land on the surface of the sun. There's an image for you. That's our sinfulness. We are soaked in sin. How can we stand in the presence of a holy God? Because our God is a consuming fire. That's Deuteronomy chapter 4. It says this. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire. So here's the question. If it is true that the punishment is not more severe than the crime, then I think the real question is this. Before a holy God, how can anyone stand in his presence? How can any of us stand in the presence of God? Can you do it? Each of us, like butane-soaked rags, 
trying to land on the surface of the sun? How can we possibly stand before God? This is the question of the entire Old Testament, and it shows itself over and over and over and over again. We saw this already in 1 Samuel chapter 6, when the people of Israel, they stand before a holy God, and they say this, 1 Samuel 6, verse 20, who can stand in the presence of this holy God? And then we see in our story, 2 Samuel chapter 6, David was afraid of the Lord on that day, and he said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? The author of 2 Samuel wants you to feel the weight of that question, wants you to struggle and grapple with it. How can we ever stand before God? Do you see the predicament of our lives? Tim Chester says this, we can't live with God because he's dangerous to sinners, but we can't live without him either, for God is the source of all good things. We can't live with him. We can't live without him. What are we to do? And here's how this whole sequence ends in the story. Look at verse 10. David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite, the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. A Gittite is from someone from the city of Gath, which is a Philistine city. So once again, just like all the other times, the ark of God is not with Israel. It's not with the Israelites. Why? Because Israel, the people of God, don't know how to answer the question on how to live in the presence of a holy God. That's the predicament of their life. We don't know what to do. We can't live with him. We can't live without him. What are we to do? It's the tension of the, of the entire Old Testament. Here's a way of thinking about this. Two, two words that we hold in tension. The first is the attribute of the holiness of God, majestic and mighty. His hatred with sin. He is pure. He is holy. And then the second attribute of God is that he is perfectly loving in every single way. And the question of the entire Old Testament is which attribute of God will prevail? The holiness of God, and therefore we're all going to wind up like Uzzah, or the love of God? Hang on to that question. That's the tension that we see in the story. And here's where it goes next. I hope you can see the gospel being laid out in this story. Hundreds of years before Jesus shows up on the scene, we see the gospel. So we see that David finds out that Obed-Edom, his life is being blessed, and he's reminded that God has come to bless, not to curse his people. So he does his homework. He tries one more time, verse 12. So David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who were, what's the word? Help me out. What's the next word? Carrying the ark. Okay, they're learning something, right? They used to be pushing it on a cart. Now they're carrying it. So they're doing it in God's way, not in the Philistines' way. That's good. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed. He sacrificed. So what's the difference between these two events? The first one is how they're carrying it. But the second one, and this is the most critical of them all, is the sacrifice. And so to that question we've asked, how can anyone stand in the presence of a holy God? The answer is through sacrifice. 
through sacrifice. The most important part of the Ark of the Covenant is called the mercy seat. And once a year, the high priest would go in and he would sprinkle the blood of a sacrifice, a substitute. All the people of Israel would stand around and they would look at this substitute who in no way, shape, or form was deserving of this death, and yet because of the death of the substitute, they live. And it reminded them of a story that they experienced, that their forefathers and predecessors experienced when they were in Egypt, called the Passover, the tenth and final plague. And it was an instance in which for every single house that had the blood of a lamb written on the doorposts of their house, the angel of death would pass over or pass by. And in every single house throughout Egypt, for Egyptians and for Jews, every single house was the same. There was either a dead lamb or a dead son, 100% across the board, a dead lamb or a dead son. It was a bloody mess. And so here's the people of Israel. They see the sacrificial lamb. They see the substitute. And they say, behold, this is the lamb who died so that I might live. This is the lamb who was substituted in my place. And friends, I hope you see this. That's the gospel. That's the gospel on shining display. And so I hope that you see that this story is in your Bible to point to an even greater story that is revealed through the person of Jesus. Jesus shows up on the scene, and John the Baptist says, Behold the what? The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Once and for all delivered, the pure and perfect and spotless Lamb, the one who sets us free. And we see a glimmer, a glimpse of this already in this story that after six steps, they lay out the sacrifice. And that's the reason why they can stand in the presence of God. And so back to that question. Which of the two attributes of God will prevail? The holiness of God, perfect and mighty? Or the love of God, perfect in every way? And I'm telling you that the religious right is going to tell you that it's all about God's holiness. And that's the reason why we need to be righteous because God grades on a curve and if you're moral enough, if you're upright enough, then God will accept you on the basis of what you've done. And the religious left will say, no, 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 no. Jesus has paid for it all. He's forgiven you. He loves you. He's gracious. Live your life the way that you want to live it. Everything's okay. Don't worry about it. And yet, what does the cross say? to the question of which attribute prevails, the holiness of God or the love of God, the answer is yes. Yes. The holiness of God and the love of God are perfectly fulfilled in the cross of Christ. He is the one who perfectly completes the covenant. Everything is fulfilled. God in his holiness, in his infinite wisdom, that is the reason why Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's God's holiness. But also, when people say he could help others, but he won't help himself, we know that at any moment and at any time, he could have called a legion of angels and went back to his father's side, but he stayed. The holiness of God, the love of God are fulfilled on the cross of Christ. 
And so my friends, if all of that is true, if this is the gospel on shining display, then there's only one question left to ask. How then shall we live? How should we live our lives? And the answer to that question, in a word, is worship. Worship. Here's how I put it in your note sheet. Worship the Lord with your lips, your limbs, and your lives. With your lips, your limbs, and your lives. Now, look, let's look at the story. Let's watch how all of this plays out. We see the heart of David, but we also have a case study in the heart of his wife, Michael. And if we're honest with ourselves, I wonder if we too, at times, have the heart of Michael. Verse 12. I'm sorry, verse 14. Wearing a linen ephod, again, that's an undergarment, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might. Well, he and all of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and sound of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, watched from a window, and when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. Circle, highlight, underline. Verse 20. When David returned home to bless his household, Michael, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. So I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. So this whole chapter is all about worship. Oftentimes when, when I hear a sermon on this chapter, it's either the first half or the second half, but, but I want you to see these are all held together. This whole chapter is all about worship. So let me give you a working definition of worship. It is simply this, to put the worthiness of something on display. To put the worthiness of something on display. And so for the balance of our time today, I want to share with you a few principles that we glean from this story on how to orient our lives as a life of worship. Displaying the worthiness of God. And I have three things I would love to highlight to you that I think are all found in the text, and I'm framing all of them as questions. Here's the first one. In your worship, do you bring your mirror or your binoculars? Do you bring your mirror or your binoculars? David, I think, is able to act undignified because he's not caught up in his own head. He's not looking at uh, everyone through the, his binoculars. He's worshiping for an audience of one. That's all that he cares about is, God, do you see my heart? Do you see my heart of worship laid out before you? Nothing else matters, only you, God. It's interesting, in, in my experience, I've been a pastor for 11 years. And when I chat with other pastors and I ask them this question, I say, like, where's the angst in your church right now? Like, where, where are the struggles that you're experiencing? Almost always, invariably, except for COVID, almost always the angst in churches is with respect to worship. 
Does that surprise any of you? People have, uh, let's just say, opinions when it comes to the topic of worship. Are you aware? And so when it comes to this, I think all of us, we, we kind of bring our own desires, our own motives, our own longings into what worship looks like, and we're very, very infatuated with what I'm just going to call worship style and preference. People are very opinionated about this, what we sing, how we sing it, instruments we use, and I think it just goes to show how consumeristic we are in the West, by and large. Because I'm telling you, the church in China, the church in Nigeria, they're not talking about technique in worship. But in the West, we talk about it all the time. It's really, really important to us. And so here's a way of thinking about this as a principle. I, I got it up on the screen for us. We are, generally speaking, here in the West, far more fixated on methods or technique of public worship, that's binoculars, than the heart of our own worship. That's the mirror. Isn't that true? Isn't that what we often do when it comes to worship? We're far more concerned with technique than with the heart. And isn't that also what Michael is caught up in, the wife of David? What is she concerned about? She is concerned about outward appearances. She's concerned about technique. She's concerned about the output of worship, right? What he's wearing, what he's doing, how he's publicly perceived by other people. She's got these big fat binoculars and she's looking around. That's what she cares about. And it's just so interesting to me. So here's a comment that I've never, ever, ever, ever heard before from any pastor. I've never experienced it myself. After a, a Sunday morning worship service, someone comes up to a pastor and says, Pastor, I was just worshiping the Lord with all of my heart, with all of my soul, with all of my mind, with all of my strength. But then in the middle of the service, I thought to myself, can we like, do this little thing or make this change? And in so doing, we can put the glory of God on shining display even brighter. We can promote the worthiness of God even brighter brighter for the glory of God and the good of those who love him. Pastor, would you be up for a conversation on that? Now, if I ever got a comment like that, I'm telling you, I'd probably dress down into a linen ephod and start running around in the streets. Sorry for that mental image. So here's the question. Do you bring your mirror or do you bring your binoculars? Is it about the heart of worship or is it about the output and the technique of worship? I can't worship unless everything is according to my style and preference. Which one is it? Number two, do you care more about your honor than God's? Do you care more about your honor or God's? In our text, Michael, she's appalled at David. Why? Because she believes that David's actions are not befit for a king. They're not befit for a king. And so that's why she says, don't you care about your reputation? Don't you care about your perception? Don't you care about how other people are viewing you? That matters. And, and who is Michael? Who's Michael? She is the daughter of Saul. And here, once again, we see the apple has gone right next to the tree. She's just like her dad. Who's Saul? He cares far more about his own honor than God's honor. He cares far more about the public perception and image he has in the eyes of others than his heart oriented toward God. And Michael is exactly the same way. That's what Michael cares about. Once again, it's binoculars. But what's David's response? He essentially says, Michael, God chose me when I was nothing. 
when I was absolutely nothing. And now that I am something, I want the whole world to know it has nothing to do with my own giftedness, my own abilities, that I'm such a cool or awesome person. It's all about God. And I want everyone in the whole world to know the glory of God. He must increase, I must decrease. And so that's the second question. Do you care more about your honor or God's? Now here's the third. Whose opinion matters more to you? God's or others? I think this one probably stings the most. It sounds similar to question two, but we see from the story that Michael, she's not just worried about whether or not uh, David's actions are befit for a king. She's also, and dare I say, even more concerned about her public perception and David's public perception She's worried about how other people view her. That's the most important thing to her in her life. And so let's just try this for a second. How do we do this today? I want you to see how all-encompassing this is. We're not just talking about singing on Sundays. We're talking about orienting our whole life as an act of worship. So I want you to see how all-encompassing it is. We'll talk about some easy ones, and then we'll go deeper from there. Here, here's a simple one. Perhaps you find yourself stuck in your own head, even when it comes to corporate worship or when it comes to public prayer. Maybe you want to raise your hands in worship, but you're worried about how other people might view you, how they might see you if you do that. Or you want to pray publicly with your family when you're at Wendy's or at Arby's or wherever you go on your restaurants. Or you're a teenager and you want to pray, but you're also a little bit worried, like, I I don't want to be like looked at as a religious weirdo. So hot tip, this is what I did when I was 12, 13, 14. It's what I call wipe your face prayers. It goes a little bit like this. Dear God, thank you for this day. Thank you for this food. In Jesus' name, amen. See, I'm just, I'm not praying. I'm just wiping my face. Follow me for more hot tips. So isn't that true though? Like sometimes we get caught in our own head. We're like, oh, I don't, I don't want people to see me like that. Like to pray publicly, ugh. To raise my hands in worship, ugh. What is that? It's binoculars. It's binoculars. Here's another way we do this, going a little bit deeper still. Perhaps you're a Christian, but you feel stuck in your own sin. Maybe this is a sin that you've been struggling with for years, maybe even decades. But in order to truly confess your sin, you can't just do it to God because you need help. You need the help of your brothers and sisters. But that means you have to be vulnerable enough, you have to be weak enough to confess that sin to your neighbor so that they can walk with you in that trial. However, here's the challenge, that means you have to be weak in your own eyes. And I'm just going to lay this out for you. This might pinch a little bit. But is it possible that you are way more concerned about your reputation in the eyes of others than your character in the eyes of God? And because of that, you're unwilling to say, I'm struggling with this. This is really hard for me. I need help with this. And so what do you do? You do the same thing Adam and Eve does. You hide. You hide. Once again, binoculars. Or maybe you want to share your faith with a family member or a friend or a coworker, or you want to invite them to church, but once again, you're worried about how they might view you, how they might perceive you. It might change the relational dynamic. It's like, oh, I don't want to do that. And so we don't. It's binoculars. And so I just want you to see how all-encompassing this is, that oftentimes we are deeply concerned with our public perception, the way other people view us, and it keeps us from doing things that are godly and good. 
and it's something that we have to die to. Isn't it interesting that oftentimes in our own life, I might recommend my favorite movies or my favorite TV shows or my favorite restaurant or my favorite Arbonne cream or my favorite you know, pyramid scheme or whatever, you name it, like all my favorite stuff, but I'm reluctant, I'm reticent to make the eternal referral so that they might see what I know, that Jesus Christ is the living God. It's binoculars. And we have to think about the motives that we carry on why we do things and also why we don't do things. Do we have a heart like Michael? So then you might say, okay, Justin, if, if I'm to live a life of worship, putting the worthiness of God on display, what does that look like? And here's, here's a bit of a principle I'd like to lay out before you. It's what our Jewish friends call the Shema. It's found in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Jesus says this is the greatest commandment of our lives. And it goes like this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. And Jesus would later all encompass that by saying, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. So here's the big word of the day. We are all psychosomatic creatures. That means we're not just ethereal souls. We're not just physical bodies, right? We're physical, emotional, psychological, spiritual, relational, all intertwined. And so what is the desire of our life? To love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. All that I have and all that I am. And if I could just share with you a little bit my experience uh, growing up in the Pentecostal church and then coming to the Reformed church. When I was in the Pentecostal congregation, I think their extra strength multivitamin was all the emphasis on the heart, what you might call the emotions, right? I want to express my love for Jesus. I want the whole world to know my expression for Jesus. And then what was the indictment on Reformed people and Presbyterians? It was like, oh, they just care about the brain. They just care about doctrine. You know, that's all they care about is like, do I know the right words? This is what matters, but where's the heart? And then I came to the Reformed tradition, and I saw this love for doctrine. It's what drew me to it. I had questions as a young person. I just felt like other churches I was a part of couldn't answer, but I found it in the Reformed tradition. And then I found out that our indictment on our non-denom and Pentecostal friends is like, they're just a little too emotional. Like, would you just calm down for a second? But here's what's really interesting. We need to worship God with all of our heart, all of our soul, right? That's our spiritual state. All of our mind, that's our intellect. And all of our strength, that's our physical connectedness. All that I have, all that I am, so let me give you an analogy. Let's say that one farmer was looking at another far farmer and he was looking at his field and he noticed that farmer never watered his crops, never did it. And they were dry and scorched and withered and he said, I'm not gonna be like that farmer. So he takes all his crops and he decides to throw them into his basement and in that way, the sun will never scorch those plants and he waters all his plants till they're good and wet and they're soaked and what happens? They get choked out. So both of them are wrong. It's not one is better than the other one. They're both wrong. What's the principle? For something to grow, it needs good water, good soil, good sun. A worshiper needs to worship with all his heart, all his soul, all his mind, all his strength, all that you have, all that you are. Are you giving yourself to Jesus? Or are you holding back? 
Is there a component of your life that you said, that's not just for me? And so let me give you an example of this. Because we're reformed, I'm going to make it awkward because it's fun, okay? You're welcome. Did you know that in Scripture there are two dozen instances in which we are instructed to raise our hands in worship? Let me give you two. Psalm 134. Lift your hands in the sanctuary and bless the Lord. 1 Timothy 2 verse 8. Paul says to his young Padawan Timothy, I desire that in every place that men should pray lifting up holy hands. Well, at least women don't have to. <laughs> the Psalms are packed with instructions on how to present our bodies in worship, to kneel, to stand, to lift holy hands, to shout, to praise. No running around in your linen ephod, which I'm personally quite grateful for, just so you know. Now, you might say, but, but Justin, what if, what if I don't feel like doing those things? Then I shouldn't do them, right? So let's just pretend for a moment that we're sitting at Starbucks and we're having a conversation about this. Here, here's what I would think about for a second. I would say, since when does how we feel serve as what we should or shouldn't do? No, no God-honoring Christian would say something like, I don't feel like praying, so I'm not going to pray. I don't feel like going to church, so I'm not going to church. I don't feel like tithing, so I'm not going to tithe. I don't feel like raising hands, so I'm not going to raise hands. I'm, I'm not going to do those things because I don't feel it. I want it to be organic. I want it to be inspirational. I just had a conversation with my kids this week, my two oldest, Liam and Jaina. They're both taking piano. And on Monday, my two kids, they didn't want to play piano. They didn't want to practice, and they let me know it. And so we had what I like to call a friendly come-to-Jesus conversation, if you catch my drift. And then they practiced on Monday. But then on Tuesday, they came home, the alarm went off to practice, and they didn't, we didn't say a word. They just sat down and they started practicing. And I'm telling you, I was proud of my kids on both days. But I was even more proud of them on Monday because that was the day they did it and they didn't want to do it. Why? Because it's a discipline. It's a discipline. If you wait for your sinful nature to want to do the right thing, you're never going to do it. But if you say it's a discipline and I want to discipline my life so that I am totally obedient to God, then you might do it. Then you stand a chance of doing it. And so here's the second question that you might ask of me. You might say, yeah, but Justin, I'm just not a very expressive person. I'm not expressive in my life. I would say, that's okay, that's okay. But here's the question that I would lay out before you. Are you that way in the rest of your life when Jesus is not the object of your worship? Are you consistent with respect to displaying the worthiness of things in your own life? As a father of four, I find myself thinking about this a lot. Am I conducting myself and my worship in such a way that my kids know the prioritization of worship in my life? Here's what my kids see. Every single time the Red Wings score a goal, they see me stand up and lift my hands in the air and get super excited, especially when they score against the Canucks, because it's just awesome. They see me get super excited when I win a board game. They see me fixated on my little cell phone screen checking fantasy football scores and making sure that I've won. They see how excited I get when I find a good referral at a good restaurant or a good movie or something like that. They would see my excitement for sports if I ever won a race or a track meet or a basketball game. They'd see how excited I would get. 
They would see me at a concert, swaying and dancing and clapping my hands, getting super excited. They would see me when I try to go and watch a hockey game. I don't sit in the nosebleeds, unless they're too expensive, and then that's where I sit. I want to sit as close as possible. They see the way that I orient my life. Now, here's the question. What do they see with respect to the worthiness of God in my life? What am I showcasing to them in terms of how I live my life? Do they see the worthiness of God on display? What do they see when I worship the sovereign creator of the universe who is most worthy of my praise? I am not telling you that you need to strip down into your linen ephod and start running down the aisles. No one wants to see that, okay? But what I am saying is, is your worship consistent? Here's a way of thinking about this. To the extent that your favorite hockey team is worthy of your praise, you should do that. To the extent that winning a high school basketball tournament is worthy of your praise, you should do that. To the extent that that concert that you go to is worthy of your praise, you should do that. To the extent that your spouse or your kids are worthy of your praise, you should do that. To the extent that new restaurant or that new movie is worthy of your praise, you should do that. And to the extent that the sovereign creator of the universe who knit you together in your mother's womb, who died on the cross for your sins, is worthy of your worship, you should do that. You should do that. It is worthy. He is worthy of your worship. I'm out of time, so let me close this way. Once again, remember, worship is to put the worthiness of something on display. There was a moment when Jesus had a woman who came to him, and she was a woman caught in adultery, caught in sinfulness, and she bowed down before Jesus, and she wept, and all of her tears flooded his feet and washed his feet, and her hair, she dried his feet with her hair. And the religious leaders, they were offended by this. They, they said, this is bad form. They said, this is undignified. They had the heart of Michael. And Jesus said this, he said, Simon, since I've been here, you've given me no water to wash my feet. And yet this woman, she has not stopped kissing my feet and flooding my feet with her tears and drying them with her hair since I've arrived. I tell you this, those who have been forgiven little love little. And those who have been forgiven much love much. So here's what I would love to leave you with today. To the extent that God is worthy of your worship, you should worship him. No more, no less. Well, you've been listening to the latest message in our series through First and Second Samuel, tracing the life of David, the Shadow King. You can find more information about this series and our church's ministry at gatewaycrc.org. I'm Jason McNabb. Please join us next time on the weekly sermon at Gateway.